Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Solve for Why vlogcast number 37. I am Andre Hengshow, joined alongside Matt Berkey. How's it going, Matt? Great. I'm exhausted. From what? Sleeping too much. Oh. I slept 14 hours. Okay. Not last night, the night before. Why did you sleep 14 hours? Well, apparently, I fucking needed it. Yeah. Who knew? Uh, I don't know. I went to bed at 9 o'clock, set my alarm for 5.30. I was like, I'm just going to get up and get after it. Slept right through that. Woke up at noon the next day. It's like, wow, that was quite the experience. I don't think I've fallen asleep at 9.30 since like 2004. How? Just, How can you burn it at both ends? We were emailing the day before <laughs> at 4.45 in the morning. Yeah. And not because we just woke up. Yeah. No. So, so like how? You just keep going, man. Because that's what led me to go to bed at 9 o'clock really? the next day. No. Yeah, of course. I, I've gone to bed at like, uh, I mean, 4, 4.40 is a little bit late for sure. Sure. But um, normally I'm like a 2, 2 to 3 type of I person. was on a real nice schedule. Mm. of going to bed at like 12.30 and waking up at 7. But what I didn't recognize was that that's just not quite enough sleep. And with each day that I didn't get that extra half hour, an hour, I think my mental capacity deteriorated a little bit more and more. Until that I almost definitely happens. Insane. I'm, I'm very lucky. Um, you know, I kind of found out in high school that I, uh, I didn't need that much sleep relative to other human beings. Now, I was definitely depriving myself back in high school but um i probably need around like six hours to feel comfortable yeah and uh, and i can go i think i'm more like seven and a half range still and honestly like the fall off is dramatic sure like i don't know exactly i, I i'm not i'm not like well versed in psychology or anything but uh i think i fall like into the manic spectrum <laughs> whenever i get like less like i honestly feel like i'm losing my scruples whenever i i'm like sleep deprived wow well i wanted to actually talk to you a lot today about mindsets um particularly through downswings and i want to this is all kicked off by the fact that there is something called the galfon challenge going on and Our hero yes we haven't really talked about this for the last three weeks um, but for those of you at home that don't know what the Galfond challenge is, Phil Galfond has put on a PLO challenge. He's put it out there and basically said, let's play high stakes PLO. We'll play a certain amount of hands. So some people it's 25 K hands, some people it's 15 K, et cetera. And there can be, um, stop losses. So it could be like, Oh, the first person to lose 400 K. Yeah. Um, it just ends. He's having his first opponent right now which is uh, Vini Vidi. And it is not going well, Matt Perky. That's, that's an understatement. <laughs> I imagine that this is the worst case scenario if he could draw it up. So they're in almost 10K hands Yeah. thus far. Of those 10K hands, he has lost, Nine. I think, close to a million dollars, 900K euro, Yeah. which is like 990, 980, sure. something like that, American dollars. Wow, that is brutal. Um, yeah. So first off, I want to ask, I know you've played super high stakes. Um, have you ever experienced that type of million dollar loss in a uh, in a time period, in a day, oh, et cetera? God, yeah. So biggest win, okay, 1.7 million. <laughs> okay. Biggest loss, a million. Okay. All within 18 hours of one another. 
Oh. And shockingly, playing PLO, which I literally never play. I played uh, Matt Kirk, heads up. Wild story. Get invited late into the big game. Um, and it's already shorthanded when I get there. Ozzy Matt's stuck. I get seated immediately to his left. I get buried. So the game just breaks around us within like two hours. I'm down like, I don't know, 200K or so. And he's down way more. And Matt is a fun, stuck person to play with. Yes. Matt so, Kirk, by the way, is Ozzy Matt. Yes. And I've never not known him to play for everything. Like yeah. this guy plays so freaking high stakes. He, Anything he does. He is very good when he's not stuck for what it's worth. Uh-huh. But a switch just flips in this guy whenever he's buried, especially in a way like that he's just, it, it just doesn't sit right with him. So he asked me if I want to play heads up and heads up, definitely not my strong suit. Um, and I think heads up boring or uh, heads up, no limit hold'em live is incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just way, way, way too slow for a live game. Um, and I would be a dog online for sure. Like I said, I'm not that strong at, at my heads up play. I don't feel that confident in it, but I actually have logged and granted this was pre black Friday, but I've probably logged a few thousand hours, uh, playing heads up PLO. I was actually kind of like my online grind coming up. So, you know, I know that he fancies himself a, a pretty good PLO player. And I definitely think he has a huge edge against me in the long run, but maybe not so much when buried. So he's like, I want to play heads up, but I don't want to play hold him. And I'm like, well, I don't really play anything else. I was like, I guess I would play some PLO. He's like, great. So we start off playing 500, 500. Isn't he a PLO specialist too? Yeah, but he's buried, Andre. He is buried. He is just not making good decisions. (laughs) So we start playing heads up and um, the match is just like swinging in my favor. And he's literally just pushing every single spot. So like I'm basically in a situation where it's like, He's going to push every single 50-50. He might even start pushing negative edges, like, you know, just just trying to gamble it up as best he can. So I'm kind of like sitting tight, which bodes well for me because I'm not great at PLO by any stretch. And, you know, I have a uh, an abstract heads-up strategy of, like, ways that I want to control the match, like ways I want the pots to formulate and stuff like that. Uh, base, basic equity thresholds that I'm willing to cross or not cross dependent upon my opponent, dependent upon uh, you know the momentum of the match and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I get up a few buy-ins on him. Now I go from like minus 200K to like plus 200K and he wants to bump it up to- How much are these buy-ins? It was no cap, but he was buying in for 100K at a time. Okay. Um, so it started 500, 500. Now we're playing 501K. Uh, and now he's just like rocketing in 100K bullets. <laughs> Like, so I literally took a zero three bet strategy, never three bet him once out of the small because I'm just trying to like mitigate risk and reduce variance as best I can from that side. Um, and then like, yeah, obviously I would like try to get it in with aces and he just like wasn't adjusting. Like he would just flip on a whim, didn't really matter. So fast forward like eight or nine hours, I'm like lending him chips out of my stack to oh keep playing. God, and ultimately like I end up loaning him like 800K which is pretty much my net worth at the time. Okay, yeah. Uh, like, are you comfortable? It, first off, was all of this your money? Um, no, I, I was. this is when I was still backed. Okay. And, uh, you know, like, we had mutual people, like, vouching for, for Matt where uh, th- this happens often, where, like, 
um, you know, mutual friends in the high stakes community or, or game runners or whatever will like vouch for a certain percentage. So like of the 800, somebody had vouched for a quarter million of it where if he ever stiffed me, I would at least have that insurance. Sure. Um, and yeah, like, so we're going back and forth. So I stack him for the final time. And he's just like, I don't suppose you want to lend me anymore. And it's just like, man, if I had infinite money, we might just play for a week. But I was like, nope, I got to call it. Sorry, go to bed. And uh, within like 12 hours, he's like, I have the money for you. And it's like, okay, well, I got to go pick it up. Well, obviously, like, I'm not going to just not give this guy another crack. Of course. I play him thinking like, you know, maybe it won't be that bad. Uh-huh. I didn't win a fucking hand, man. <laughs> he is just like stone cold, even killed, watching football games. Like, I've never seen him not lose a sports bet. He's winning every fucking bet. And it's just like he's smiling and just dragging every pot. I can't do anything right. And I end up like losing a million back. We were playing bigger this time. I think we were playing like 1K, 2K. Oh my God. Uh, so I end up losing a million back and, and hitting a stop loss. But yeah, I mean, these, you know, these, these swings are so common. Like, especially dealing with a backer at that realm where at any given time over the six years that I was playing in the big game, I would show up and the stakes would be anywhere from 200, 400 to 1K, 2K. And it was literally just variable upon the lineup, uh, you know, dependent upon who was stuck, whatever. So it's like, you're never really even playing a fixed stake. I went on a five and a half million downswing. And I think if we ran like a variance calculation, it wouldn't even be more than like one and a half standard deviations away from what's expected. Like, that's just not that much when you're playing like 100 to 200K minimum buy-ins. How, how do you deal with that where... You're saying like 800K is your net worth at that point. Um, and then you go on the next day to lose a million. Like that to me seems so um, terrifying. And uh, like, I mean, it is. But you, have like, reco- you have recovery mechanisms in place like for your life? Well, I was only 15% at risk. Okay. So the way my deal worked was I put up 15% of the capital and I got uh, 30% in return. Got it. So... Um, you know, it's, it was more of an opportunity. So basically every single time I sat down, it was just like, is this opportunity worth investing in? And that was probably one of those ones where maybe I let my, you know, good spirited nature get the best of me. Like definitely wasn't a spot. And I'm certainly not a favorite against Matt when he's not steaming. Um, so it's like me just always adhering to like the gambler's creed of giving action and uh, you know trying to be fair and just and, and stuff like that. It's like, that probably cost me some there. But at the end of the day, like throughout the two sessions, we still made a lot of money. Like I cleared makeup and uh, ended up making 30% of um, like four or 500K. It's just, you know, it would have been nicer sure. to make 30% of, you know, 1.5 million. How many of these stories do you have where? So many, man. So I, I've played so many pots over a million dollars. Pots. Yeah. I three quartered somebody in a one point seven million dollar pot, which oh. was like the best feeling on earth. Uh it was it was really sick because it should have never happened. Well, first of all, the hand is fucking absurd. But uh we were playing I think we were playing three six twelve. Seaver open to uh three K under the gun. Doc Sands called and Marcus, the infamous Marcus, uh, CEO from Silicon Valley, who just is wild man, squeezes to um, 10K. And 
you know, he just has an infinite range, and we're playing like 850k deep. Okay. So I have queen jack suited in the big blind. I cold four to 35,000. Everybody else folds, he calls. Flop comes uh, queen 10, queen 10, eight. Yeah, queen 10, eight, uh, two spades and a heart. And okay. I have queen jack of hearts. Yeah. So I bet like 40K, he calls. Turn nine of hearts. Okay. Giving me a straight and a flush draw. Yes. Three bets end up going in uh, and we play for all of it. Neither of us table our hand. And I, you know, the standard is just like once or twice. And uh, he gives me the option. I obviously say twice. First one's a heart. And I go, I think that's me. Second one's a brick. And I go, I hope that's me. And I table my hand. And I have queen jack of hearts for a flush and then a straight. Uh-huh. He tables uh, jack five of spades for also a turn straight and a flop flush draw. So it's like if we just table our hands on the turn, we're both 50-50. We just chop the pot up and move on with our lives. But instead, I'm on the right side of variance here, and I end up getting the three-quarter him in like a $1.7 million pot. Unreal. That was pretty sick. Holy crap. Would you say like under over 10 of these situations? Over, for sure. I've, over. I've, I've played 10 $1 million pots with Marcus alone. Oh, my God. For sure. I lost a million dollar pot against uh, Roger Sipple, where I squeezed with kings. He called with jack ten of spades, and it came uh, king queen x uh, with king queen of spades. Bet he calls whatever um, turn is an offsuit jack, and we get all the money in. And uh, you know, I basically go once or twice, and he goes, "I don't know. I have a pretty good hand," and I go, "So do I," and I table my kings. Huge mistake don't table your hand against rex he looks at it and he goes my hand's not so good anymore and tables jack 10 of spades for uh, a pair and a royal draw and i go so once or twice he goes i don't think i can win twice just once ace of spades right on the river for a royal oh my god <laughs> stands up takes a picture takes a picture of me takes a picture of the board meanwhile i just lost a seven figure pot but i won two pots over a million dollars in that same session like the game used to be insane it, it's not that big anymore at least not often. does it get to you ever Oh, during that $5 million downswing, I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. Uh, Were, did you go broke during that $5 million downswing or no? No, not even close. Um, but you, you have gone broke before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, depending be- on who you ask, you're sure. broke right now. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely definitely not. Um, yeah, I went broke probably five or six times leading up to 2013. Okay. So 2012 was the last time I was, I was officially poker broke, um, which is when... I did the the thing with Jason. Little did he know, I needed the money. <laughs> that was the big reason I was on Team Russell. Okay. Um, but yeah, so like that actually helped get me through the year. Was like doing that coaching gig with Russell. Uh, I made a few thousand dollars on it and uh, parlayed it a little bit, playing like two five and stuff like that. Um, then in January of 2013, a really close friend was like, "Listen, man, like I see you working hard. I think that like you're ready. I'm just gonna give you some money." And I was like, "No." not going to do that. And he's like, all right, well then I'm going to pay you for coaching. I go, no, not going to accept that. And I just woke up with 5k in my bank. So the the friend from the origin series. Yeah. yeah, Berto. Um, and I parlayed that into a tournament score at the win for 25k, which Mm -hmm. then led to me selling a package to the world series, which then led to three final tables. And the next thing I knew in August, I had like almost a half a million dollars. You think if he didn't exist, you would be where you are today? (sighs) 
it'd be hard to say yes, but I also kind of think that you create opportunities for yourself. Sure. So it's like, Berto's very special, uh, both to me and to this story, in the sense that uh, he was there at the time that I needed him most, and he extended a helping hand uh, when he absolutely didn't have to, because you know he's a good friend and he had like a lot of faith in me. But I would, or or maybe like anecdotally speaking, it seems like that occurrence happens to me a lot, and I'm saying that from a point of of like survivorship bias. Where like I'm recognizing how fortunate I've been in all the spots where shit hit the fan and I everything went wrong. Yeah. There there's just so much to unpack here because I think a lot of the people that are watching, um, well, just the general population, you live you have lived a life already that uh not many people can relate to. You yeah. Know, I've been in this scene for six years now, and you're still bringing up stories that it just still blows my mind. I know it exists, yeah. but like to actually be sitting here talking to you about this, um, the fact that you seem like a regular human being, Matt. <laughs> well, and then, I am. And then I hear that you're in like 50, 50 different million dollar pots or whatever the number yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, That's wild. Like, yeah, no, it's weird. That's top 0.0001% experiences, you know? Yeah, but like... And the thing is, I think that like we're so kind of numb to these numbers getting thrown around just due to how publicized they all are mm-hmm. and uh, you know the same faces. This is all happening behind the glass doors. So like nobody really knows. These are just old wives tales and, and the one that got away type stories. But yeah, I mean, to live through it, honestly, I'm still not far enough removed from it. Like I still kind of say these or, or like tell these stories with a shrug. Where it's like, I don't feel anything thinking back on them. And, you know, though you feel like the rush when you win and the defeat when you lose in real time, you also just like wake up the next day ready to do it again. Like effectively, I was just employed for a high capital business where it was my job to manage the money. Yeah, but it's a little bit different because I would even say it's like UFC. You're going in there. You're fighting. You are doing damage to yourself when you lose. For sure. Mental damage For to sure. yourself. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, it's a lot worse. Yeah. There's no other feeling than putting in 18 hours of work in a single 24-hour period time and having less than what you started with. Right. That is unlike Especially when it's else. money you don't possess. Yeah. That's right? really like, weird. I mean, to be fair, the only seven-figure loss I ever had was that heads-up match against Ozzy Matt. But, like, there were plenty of 300 to 600K losses. Like, a plethora of them. Um, and those all seemed to feel worse than the many seven-figure wins that I had. I probably had, like, six or seven wins that were, were seven figures uh, throughout the, the years. And as good as those always felt, they were more relieving than anything else. Because they would alleviate a collection of 300K losses or, or 500K losses, whatever. So wrapping it around to the Galfond challenge right now, um, Phil Galfond tweeted out recently, um, just being very open, um, just his thoughts, whether or not he should quit, um, how he should approach everything, why it hurts so much. I think one of the big things of poker is we all kind of expect to do well. Yeah. So you you see yourself, especially for someone like Phil, 
where he can look at a chart and see like, oh, my numbers are plus EV for all these spots. So I should be at, you know, let's just, I'm just going to say numbers, right? Like I should be at plus four big blinds per hundred, whatever it is. I don't know exactly what it is. And to find out that you're running a million dollars below EV or what he feels, probably a million, 200,000 below EV. Yeah. It's like an extra dagger to him. And he's talked about like how he should proceed forward. I think the Galphon challenge, what's so different about it too, is that you're forcing yourself to play, right? Like you play in one of the back rooms, you can just be like, okay, I'm down a million, I'm done. But I couldn't. So I can relate to this. Okay. Because like you're employed. You know, somebody's taking a huge risk on you and putting up a lot of capital. If you get an invite to a good game, it's your job to be in the right mental capacity to show up day in and day out. I left Brent's wedding reception early to go to the big game. Like, I was a doctor on call 24-7. I didn't travel for the first 18 months. I just made sure that, like, if ever the opportunity arose, I would be ready for it. And how did you stay, like, mentally aware, uh, mentally focused, bringing your A game? Because Phil's even said, like, I'm playing my C game right now. Yeah. You know, at I, I went I went through bouts of that, too. And, and honestly, like... If Phil does look at the the chart and see that like the negative BV graph, if that hurts him worse, then I would say he's in a pretty healthy state of mind. Because at that time, particularly speaking to like the five million downswing, I was very much uh, a self sabotager, in the sense that finding level ground on excuse on an excuse like that was was alleviating to me. So if I would have been able to look at a graph that just said like, hey, you're down five and a half million, but you're also running like three million below EV. I would have just been like, oh, thank God. Like, I'm still validated. You know, this this isn't a me thing. This is just a, a time thing. And all I have to do is wait it out. And it actually would have alleviated a lot of my stress. But in live poker, you don't get that luxury, right? Mm-hmm. So all I had to look at was I would I would literally go in the, the way I tried to self-correct was I would go in every single session, I would write down every single hand and I would just log them and then I would let them sit and go back to them like 10 or 15 days later and say like, okay, what about these are bad? Some of them would be like hand selection. Some of them would be like uh, over-aggressing in accordance to like what the minimum equity threshold should be for a spot. And, you know, I would catch myself like making excuses of like, well, it was against this guy or, or that, whatever. And uh, honestly, I don't know that I would have pulled out of it um, if I wasn't forced to to take time off and go care for my grandmother. So, you know, regarding what Phil's doing right now, where he's just paying the penalty to take time off, I think it it's really, really critical. We give ourselves way too much credit to be able to battle day in and day out and just shrug off the results, win or lose. That's just not how our mind is oriented. And it's not what motivates human beings. We need positive feedback loops, no matter what. And when the game that you're playing doesn't offer them, you have to seek them out elsewhere. So you have to find validation in something. And I think that's why Phil is so forthright with how he's feeling and you know he's venting a little bit. But also it's like great to see just how human he is and how much of a toll this process really does take even on somebody who we deem to be like one of the best. For me, it was like uh, almost like a forced step away. So my grandmother was terminal. Um, my mother had just passed. So she was also grieving 
as, as a mom herself. So it's just like, okay, well, uh, all of these other responsibilities aside, like the number one thing you have to do as a man is care for your family. So I'm going home and I'm going to see her through this. And for four months, I was just her caregiver. And however bad you think a five and a half million dollar downswing is, <laughs> doesn't pale in comparison to having to see your grandmother go from smiling and uh, up and at him to being completely bedridden, needing her ass wiped on a daily basis. It's like, you know, we we almost age in reverse that kind of way where by the end she was she was infantile. You know what I mean? Like she lost her ability to speak. She lost her ability to move, get out of bed, whatever. It's just this dismal uh, decay that occurs in front of everybody's face. And that was hard. But it was also like uh, kind of a, a really proud moment where it felt so good to be able to kind of be there for her and like see her through that. I can't imagine what it would be like if I was hands off, if I was just in Vegas, you know, texting back with my sister saying like, okay, let me know when it gets really bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, honestly, like in, in a weird way, I think that that was the saving grace and I just didn't lose for the next year. Like I want, I'd lost 26 of 28 sessions to get on the five and a half million dollar downswing. And I ended up winning like 24 of 28 when I came back, plus the super high roller bowl final table. You ever want to quit during that? No, but this weird thing happens uh, when we suffer through negativity day in and day out. We readjust what our, our like level of pain and despair and torture can possibly be. And we set it as like the new norm. So like my expectation went from thinking that I was the best player in the game who was always going to win to decaying down to, okay, well, uh, I'm definitely winning in this game, but I don't know what the results are going to be to like showing up every day saying like, I just hope it's not that bad. And as that decay took place, you start to drift into this weird headspace where you just want it to end. You don't want to quit. And it's a fleeting thought, right? But you just want your backer to call you and say like, that's it. We're done. You know what I mean? And you almost want it for the sheer and utter like rock bottom despair where you can finally just like stop clinging to hope and just like let it all fall out and then bounce and, you know, recover a day or two later and say like, okay, I'm ready. I'm reset. Like that's almost like the reset that you need. So like fortunately for me, uh, the, the people who were backing me had a lot of faith. They stuck with me. I mean, it hurt me a lot financially because I had a really sweet deal to begin with. And with every million that got added to the bankroll, I continually got diluted further and further. And I had to start putting up more capital myself. Initially, I only put up like 5% for 50%. And then by the time it was all said and done, I put up like 15% for 30%. So mm. uh, massive, massive dilution took place. And, uh, you know, I really put my back against the wall. But at no point was I like um, really consciously saying like, I never want to do this again. But there were infinite points where I was just like, please let it end. Like, please let it end. And then the second that it does, I know exactly what's going to happen. I'm just going to be like, oh, no, I need it back. I want it back. What's so scary to me with the whole Galfon challenge? Um, you know, we can look and say Galfon or he can look and say, I'm in a downswing right now. But he goes again tomorrow or whenever he starts up again, there's no... There's no guarantee. There's no 
um, just knowing that it's going to regress back to you know yeah. wherever it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's not entitled to an upswing. Right. Know? If anything, it's just it's just straight neutral. And if he's playing terrible, it's going to be exacerbated. Yeah, quite for a bit. sure. Um, and man, it, it's I think it's a testament to maybe how crazy you are, or maybe how strong you are. I have no clue that that mental fortitude is. I feel something that I don't think a lot of people come out from. Even like when you went broke, have you ever considered quitting? poker and just saying fuck all this yeah uh when i went broke in 2012 um honestly like again like i i I look to these dark moments as like some of the most uh transformative ones that i've gone through in my life uh the the point in 2012 where i went bust (laughs) so funny like the chain of events that had to occur i had 300,000 a year prior um but i was just too young i didn't really know what to do with it yet it was you know uh, I, I came into the money in 2010 through a deep world series run. So it was just like, I was in my twenties. It was a lot of money. I didn't have any means to uh, invest or diverse, uh, diversify. So it was like, I did what I knew. I invested in the people around me. And that's not always the smartest thing because you're, you're, real, you're really like investing with your heart more so than your head. So I wasn't like very good at, mitigating risk, calculating risk of ruin, like uh, appropriating my bankroll for myself as well as my my horses. And so like, yeah, I just like started firing. I, I put Brian in a bunch of 510 games and $3,500 WPTs and um, my other friend, Brandon, I was firing off on him. I ended up losing like almost 200K backing. Uh, and at the same time, I was playing 10, 20, 40. So literally one downswing was just gonna end me. And that's exactly what happened. Like I, I was crushing 10, 20, 40 for probably the better part of two and a half years. And then there was this stretch from like September to January uh, of 2011, where I was going to mostly be on the East Coast. Bergata runs events in September and January. Um, and I was going to be home a little bit where there was big underground games. We were playing like 2550 back then. So I was like dabbling in uh, a lot of like mid to high state games and just getting my head kicked in. I remember a lot of key pots where it was just like, well, that was the worst thing that could have happened. Like the table knit four bets me in a spot uh, where I have tens and I just call and it comes like 10, nine, six. And somehow he has eight, seven. And it's just like, that's just not a thing. And we play like a 600 big blind pot. And it's just like, you know, a bunch of those events occurring as they should, because when you're as negligent as I was, you're meant to go broke. So it all culminated with me like cutting them early 2012. Uh, I was playing an uncapped game at the Venetian of 510-20. Sit down with my, literally my last 20K because I was sick and this is what I did. So I think I had like 20K on the table and like maybe three or 4K in the bank. And I get kings in the cutoff. And this reg uh, who was a little spewy, a little aggro that I had a lot of history with, uh, I open. He three bets, I four bet, he five bets, I rip, he calls. And I go once or twice, and he goes, I only run it once. And the irony is that he's not even playing poker anymore because he makes bad decisions like that. But he had just made a deep run in the main and had more money than he was ever going to need at the time. So we run it once for this 40K pot at 5, 10, 20, which is insane. 
And he has ace-king suited and just flops me stone dead. Ace-ace-deuce. I was like, that was the fitting end to it all. So for the next like year and a half or so, I was just on my ass. And it was really a matter of like, well, how much of my worth do I derive from playing this game versus like, could I be offering something else to the world elsewhere? And I didn't have any answers at all. And it's not, it's not a, it's not an exercise in actually identifying what you're good at, what value you offer, or any of those things. It's much more an exercise in figuring out who the fuck you are, what you stand for, and you know what you value uh, in importance in this life. So like, I actually kind of went the other path instead of like digging into vocations and like uh, alternate career paths and things like that. I just started coaching like one, three, uh, like one, three players for like 50 bucks an hour, 75 bucks an hour, just enough to get by. And then I was spending like five or six hours a day just researching uh, like the self-actualization process. So like just diving down rabbit holes of like Brene Brown with empathy and, uh, you know, all these thought leaders and, um, you know, motivational speakers. Honestly, what like one of the people that uh, I enjoyed the most throughout the whole process was Eric Thomas. And he's literally nothing but a hype man. Be comfortable on who you are. Be comfortable if y'all poor. If you come from a family right now that's broke, you use that, use that to your advantage. I use that to my advantage that I was a high school dropout, that I was homeless, that I ate out of trash can. I, I love dealing with a dude who think because he come from money, he better than me. Let's go. Let's go. You got money, but do you got that dog? Yeah, you got money, you got print, but do you got that dog? Can, do you got that stamina? So yeah, you might have something I don't have right now, but if I work hard, I can have what you have. The guy's message is just literally like, I'm not that smart. I grew up in the streets. I ended up homeless and now I have a PhD. And that's all he said. It's just repetitive, right? He's the, uh, you got to want it as bad as you want to breathe guy. But like that, that sparked something in me, like having that, that cheerleader who's just constantly in your ear saying like, stop feeling bad for yourself and get off your ass and do stuff. My routine every single day was the same. I would wake up at like 10 a.m., trying to start the day and I would be napping by 10:30. And then by like one or two, I'd finally drag myself out of the house, go to the gym. I would actually work hard there and I would come home. And while the endorphins were flowing, I would just start down this path of like, okay, who seems like they have it figured out? And like, what advice can they offer me? And I mean, honestly, like it was, it was transformative. Like mm -hmm. it really made me understand a lot more about the emotional brain. It made me understand a lot more about um, you know, socializing and how critical that is. Uh, a secondary aside, I ended up going on 100 first dates over that time period because one of the things that plagued me was I was insanely shy and I just wanted to get over the inability to speak to somebody for the first time. Uh, that worked incredibly well. And then off the back end of it, I ended up in a relationship, which at the time was like my first serious relationship. So it was just like all of these things that had literally nothing to do with poker, but were probably a big underlying reason why I was ultimately failing. Wow. That's pretty crazy, honestly. Even the 100 first dates. I don't think a lot of people have um, put themselves in that spot. Where... I'm so sad I didn't blog about it. Yeah. It would have been Seriously. so fascinating. Like, I don't even remember most of them now. Did you ever have to like restart your stakes? You were playing 10, 20, 40. Did you ever have to go back down to two, five and grind that or um, five, 10 or whatever? Well, when I was, while I was broke, I was basically coaching uh, for small amounts of money. And then like, 
I would have a couple bones thrown my way here and there, like the the thing with Russell and Jason, um, and then a couple other things here and there. Like I sold my car and got a few thousand back. So uh, I would just always take that money and then just try to run it up at two five, with varying success. Never enough to sustain, but you know there were a couple times where I had my hands on like six or seven thousand, and then ultimately I would need to spend and uh have a downswing and you know go broke again but yeah it was just this rinse and repeat process where um i just didn't have faith in me being happy doing anything else and i was i've always had this like confidence that if you're of sound mind and this is ultimately what i arrived at through the self-actualization process uh particularly like studying maslow's hierarchy of needs if you're of sound mind, the lower hierarchies are largely just like cared for in modern society. So the the lower hierarchies are just food, shelter, clothing, uh, safety, protection. And it's just like if you have a decent network of friends who give a shit about you and you're an intelligent person who has something to offer uh, in the short run, all of those needs are generally going to be fulfilled without much pressure being on your back. Like I, I took out a credit card the second I went broke and I ran up 10K in credit card debt, which sucks, but I also paid it off in one fell swoop, right? Because it's like this credit card debt's not going to bury me for life, but getting through this transitional phase is really critical and adding some sort of like monetary stress to it is problematic. So yeah, I mean, I just like had this faith that I would bounce uh, and I think that allowed me the freedom to kind of just like explore non-traditional paths. Yeah, I think you're in an exceptional or you were in an exceptional path where um, you had the agency to do that. I Obviously, I don't think a lot of people have that capacity to go 10K in debt and right. not be buried for life, to yeah. be completely honest. No, that's true. And uh, not only do you have the monetization path, but you have the capacity to do it. Whereas I think a lot of other people, you know, 10K is tremendous, I think for the majority of human beings. And that's why I, I don't know if a ton of people get into your spot and I'm going to be really morbid here, but sure. I am actually brutally surprised that we don't hear a ton of poker players. We find out that they just commit suicide. Yeah. Because these spots to me are just for normal human beings that are not in poker. They're, they're like life ending, right? Like it, it feels like, Think about that for a second, though. That's so crazy because I, I was actually having this discussion on Twitter the other day where um, people were talking about Nick actually tweeted something to the effect of, I wonder if the live player recognizes that due to the inability to put in volume, he's taking on a riskier path than uh, driving Uber and gambling his entire check in the pits. And I thought that that was like extreme. I don't think that 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 is fundamentally true, but I get the gist of what he's trying to say. However, I think the the, the rebuttal that I came with is small amounts of money really don't matter. And a lot of people were saying like, well, imagine if you had 5K and you were just trying to run it up and you went broke. I'm like, yeah, but like 5K's buying power is nearly nothing. And 5K's earning power is probably even less. So it's just like, I get that $5,000 is a fundamentally large sum of money to the vast majority of the world. But if we look at what its functionality actually is, it's negligible. So it's strange to me because I agree with you that like people run up 10K of debt and suddenly like suicide seems like a better out than any other means to an end. But that's so fundamentally sad to me that 
that's the value of a human life. Well, I'm actually saying that I'm surprised that it's not happening nearly as much. Well, it's not happening nearly as much in poker, but I think it's happening worldwide. Yeah. Uh, I tend to agree. I think um, the hopelessness, Gaffon actually mentioned this in his in his yeah. blog. Um, it's the hopelessness that really gets to you where I think for him, he doesn't even, you know, he has a very mathematical brain. I think his mathematical brain doesn't really see a way for him to dig right. himself out. Right. right. He's up against an opponent that has just battered him yeah. over a course of time. And, you know, he's sincerely contemplating just leaving, Le- leaving the whole thing altogether. I don't think he will. I don't think he will either. I, I, I think he's going to come back. And uh, not only do I think he's not going to quit him, I think he's going to win um, short term. I, I don't think he's necessarily going to win the challenge against Vanny Vita. Sure. But I think because they don't start back up until after March 1st. So I think two weeks is going to do him a world of good. And I think he stands to gain way more from the time off than Vinny Vitti does. Totally. We're still talking about an elite talent here. It's it's not like Phil's gambling. Phil is an extreme competitor. Any of these guys that are doing anything in the higher echelon of poker, they're all extreme competitors. And they have that extreme mindset. Yeah. Extreme ownership. Everything that goes with just being able to compete at the very high level of anything. So I respect it, and it's a little bit different um, for for him. But um, to bring it back to you know regular people, I think it's that hopelessness. Yeah. That 10K, you're just buried 10K, and you have no clue how you're going to afford that. Yeah. And um, you have built yourself that infrastructure where you said, I don't know the terminology exactly. I actually never read the book or don't – I haven't even been exposed to it. But the lower-level hierarchical needs. Yeah. Um, I think when those are a struggle right? and you're 10K buried, that is ho- extreme hopelessness. So, uh, yeah, so that's uh, my very first public speaking appearance ever. Uh, I went back to my high school to do a talk and I framed it around uh, Maslow's hierarchy. So basically he was a, 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 psych- a psychologist in like the 50s or 60s, I think. He developed this pyramid of needs. Um, and the basic needs are the ones that I mentioned. And then from there, there becomes this hierarchy where the next level that we yearn for is love from another. And then love for oneself is ascending upward uh, until finally you arrive at altruism. So effectively, it's just a path to the greater good. Um, and his argument, and more so even mine, is that uh, it it's, well, his argument is it's impossible to address the higher needs when you're focused on the lower needs. And my argument is that um, we're kind of all distracted by the lower needs, which is taking us away from the higher ones. So we're in modern times where the vast majority of people, at least in the United States, are in a situation where they have the capacity to escape the the rat race, the trap. Because that's really what the lower needs are, right? It's just a trap. But consumerism and the messaging that we put forth and all this other stuff kind of keeps sucking us back in. We look for validation in the lower needs instead of in the higher instead of recognizing that we'll be validated from love from another and love for oneself and ultimately doing good for the collective community we get sucked back into the materialistic aspect of it of wanting more food more clothing more shelter more uh fancy things that are going to make us feel better and you know largely what uh i guess my whole takeaway was is that this is kind of being fed to us through the whole traditional path of grow up, get educated, get married, have kids, have a career, die. And the problem is when you start to order things that way, you're ordering them in reverse, 
right? So like that is in essence kind of starting with these love for oneself, love for another type of, of mindsets, putting all that emphasis on you as a child. And then the second that you feel like that's fulfilled in any sort of shallow way, now you spend the rest of your life just trying to fulfill the lower needs. Yeah. So care for your family, care for yourself, uh, work your ass off, retire, die. And it's it's the inverse way to do it. It's why we can't achieve more greater good if we could all just unify and align for like purpose. So I'm Asian. Sure. Have a very Asian Didn't mother. notice. <laughs> have a very Asian mother. So you have work ethic. Very, very Asian mother. I sort of have work ethic. Um, you know, growing up in high school and all that, I believe it or not, I was a terrible student. So for some reason, our school allowed 20 unexcused absences before you get dropped. Oh, that's nice. And then infinite excused absences. That's real nice. So what I ended up doing was I had computer science first, first, um, first period. You had computer science in high school? In high school, yeah. I showed up freshman year and I was like, what is this fancy computer science you guys speak of? Let's try it. What I would do if I didn't feel like going throughout the day, mm-hmm. I would go to my computer science class. I was very good friends with Mrs. Ryan. Sure. I said, please mark me absent. Right. I did that up to 19, uh, uh, 19 uh, unexcused yeah, absences. Yeah. Um, and uh, the reason why I did that was, you know, I just wouldn't feel like continuing. Where, where would my- you go? I would stay in school sometimes. I would go to the park. I would just go home and play so StarCraft. still hang out at school? Sometimes. Like just to, to hang out. But then I would just not go to certain classes. Yeah. I remember passing my stats teacher in the hall. And I said, Schneider, at the time, he knew exactly what I was doing. Yeah. I said, Schneider, I'm not here today. Just straight <laughs> up. This sounds like a pretty loose <laughs> school environment. I got to tell you. He said... Because I actually just met up with him. This is 2004. Mm-hmm. I just met up with him like last year. Okay. So we're, we're still good friends. Um, and he said that he was just happy I was going to school. <laughs> so oh, whatever whatever times that you would want to go in. Okay. So um, when I hit the 19, what I would do is print out notes and then forge my parents' signatures in first period. Of course. To get excused. So I probably showed up to 100 days of school wow. out of the 180. This is exactly what I did in college. Ah, I stopped going to class after freshman year completely, but because of computer science, like you're just always programming. Yeah. So it wasn't that big a deal. What I would do is I would show up the first day of class always, and I would go meet with my teachers and it was a small, uh, a small group of teachers that you had the whole way through. Sure. I would just show up and I would say, Hey, I'm a student athlete. I have a lot on my plate. Uh, I trust I can get this work done without coming to class. If you feel the need to dock my grade for it, so be it. I'll be in at office hours and I will turn in uh, my assignments in batches. I'll see you at the midterm. And none of them ever docked me for not attending. That's wild. <laughs> it was crazy. That's wild. That That's a very special. I, I treated college like a business. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, all my time is going to be invested in sports and girls and then poker. And uh, whatever I have left over, I'm going to get this fucking degree that I'm never going to use. Sure. And, uh, you know, it's going to be diminishing returns if I put a lot of effort into it. Very interesting. Um, So why why I go to that is because my mom, especially, all she cared about was a job. Mm -hmm. She wanted me to get great education and a great job. And I was very resistant. Yeah. So I think the Asian methodology of raising kids is actually perfectly in line with 
what you were talking about. Like, I wasn't even supposed to have girls right. at home. Right. They, Super traditional. Into college. Yeah. Um, I remember I brought my girlfriend home from, um, girlfriend home for New Year's. And she's like, oh, she can sleep upstairs. I was like, all right, well, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But that, like, she's very, very traditional. I remember afterwards, got a very stern talking to. They just didn't like me. They, they thought girls were a distraction from my career. Well, they were right. Um, they totally are. <laughs> but look at where I am now. But like, okay. also, you're 19. You're supposed to be distracted. Totally. Those those formidable years are so critical for social. Like uh, when my nephew was struggling trying to make a decision after call or after high school, I was like, I don't care what you do, but you have to at least try college. Because I think those four years are so critical in molding somebody socially that it's worth the debt. It's worth, you know, foregoing making money early and everything else. Well, I didn't realize that the people that I were I was dating um, and the people that sh- all of them kind of hung out with throughout my college career were some of the higher echelon people mm-hmm. of humans. Yeah. To me, it's just it's standardized. I don't really have a huge knit. Uh, close knit in in um, college because I was playing StarCraft all the time. Sure, that was my focus. That was my one true love, and so those people kind of normalized to me. It wasn't until later that I actually realized they're like these. I I know their methodologies of how they worked. Yeah, I understood like uh, the amount of hard work that went into it, and if I wanted to, I was able to just steal their methodologies. Sure, and put that into my my uh my passions mm-hmm. and at the time my my senior year of college it was statistics i actually love statistics so i went all in with that i did really well yeah. honestly um i think college taught me how to be hardworking. it wasn't anything else yeah like throughout my life but i had some really disturbing problems i think socially with other humans because of that reverse so it wasn't until my now fiance um there's a discussion that she always brought up um, that that is burned into my mind. I was talking to her about all my friends from the East Coast. I said, Melissa is this, um, you know, she's a, she's an accountant. She might go into the FBI, that kind of stuff, go through the list. And she goes, you realize that you're just telling me what their professions are and you're right. not telling me who they are as human beings. Yeah. And I realized that uh, because of my upbringing, because of what you know, I was kind of melded to focus on. I saw people so transactionally, yeah, for so long, and I lost a lot of the human element. And it wasn't until Johanna that I really started to understand more of the human element of things. So I, I get that there is a hierarchical reverse mm-hmm. when when we talk about what the game plan is, but there are some unintended consequences when we reverse that. And I feel like I wasn't adap- able to adapt into society until a lot later into yeah. my life. Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, it, it's the EQ IQ problem, right? When you're very intelligent, uh, it's just kind of natural that that's what your peers and the adults around you cultivate. And EQ kind of gets foregone. Uh, and the wider that margin is, the more that you do see this like disconnect and coldness and transitional uh, view of, of human beings. Um, whereas like whenever you are 
more uh, approaching or regressing towards the average IQ, it's just likely that your EQ is going to be heavily developed. You're going to be thrust into more vocational type of, of uh, scenarios and you're going to be put into peer groups a lot and you're going, to, you're going to learn how to work well with others and lean on each other where it's like, well, I'm not strong in this and you are and I'm stronger in this and you're not. So let's kind of scratch each other's back and you, you learn how to work the system a lot better. Um, I think my laziness in school helped me tremendously with that uh, because it was one of those things where at home, and uh, whether I believed it or not, I was just always thought to be this like super high achieving kid and I was gonna be so intelligent and I had this path to whatever I wanted. But I never really cling to that. Like when asked what I wanted to be growing up, it was always an athlete. Like I never had a tangible thing I wanted to cling to. And fortunately, like I wasn't really surrounded by too many people who were just like rock star geniuses, which was great because I didn't feel like I needed to compete at an IQ level. And instead, all of my energy was forced into uh, kind of uh, adapting through an EQ lens. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was hiding my home life. So it's like when you have a mom who's a crackhead and can't drag herself out of bed and the apartment's a disgusting mess with like roaches crawling through and your cupboards are bare, you don't really want people to know about that. Mm -hmm. So you get really good at adapting. Is that you? Yeah. Holy shit, dude. Oh, yeah. I grew up like wildly impoverished. So I got very good at covering up the skeletons of my closet and just becoming very adaptable. And that's a challenge whenever like you don't have the nicest clothes and, uh, you know, you don't have the availability to say like, oh, well, my mom will take us here, there or the other. Right. It's like you're always the kid who needs a ride. You're always the kid who needs a free lunch. You're always the kid wearing hand-me-downs or willing to accept it. But uh, I was lucky in that I found a core stable friend group early, some of which that I could like entrust this secret with. And it was like one of these weird community things where like I was just cared for always. Right. No matter whose house I went to, I always had a, I always had a meal. Uh, I, w I would have the the hand me downs just given to me where it's like, hey, we're the same size shoes. Like, why, why don't you get out of those? Here you go. Um, and it kept me it kept me competing. Right. Like I played roller hockey from 10 to 15 and was insanely good. Like I have scoring trophies. We, we won championships and all this other stuff. I couldn't afford skates. That, that's an expensive fucking sport. Yeah. So it's like I was, uh, and the thing was, it wasn't, um, it was only semi-organized. So we were in charge of our own teams. We didn't have coaches or anything like that. So effectively I was the coach in exchange for like equipment from my friends. So it's like if you organize this team and you get everything together, we think you're very good. Uh, we'll we'll take care of the rest and that kind of thing. So they kept me in wheels and sticks and all this other stuff, and it was just this like, I don't. I mean, honestly, like looking at it now in a zoomed out perspective, it's crazy to think that compared to the way the world operates on a grand scale, how tribal we were in this tiny little niche community where everybody's secrets were out in the open, and. At least as far as I knew, mine was buried, buried deep inside. Well, that's wild, dude. It's not to spin off too hard, but do you think that you were you were born a leader or do you think that your um, surroundings kind of thrusted you into that position where if you weren't, you just weren't going to participate in anything that you wanted to do? Um, I think it's a fine line between leadership and being a loner 
So I would say that most everybody who is thrust into that role probably has the tendency to be one or the other. Um, and I don't really know that I accept that uh, I'm like sought after as a leader necessarily, but I know that I've, I've gotten away from being a loner in most areas of my life. Like there are still areas that I struggle, uh, particularly like very close relationships. I tend to pull back. But yeah, I, I think that it takes the empowerment of a collective to kind of give you a sense of validation where you're like, okay, they, I have their ear and they want to know what I know or they want to see what I see or do what I do, whatever. Um, and I think, you know, largely, I, I, I didn't think of that stuff growing up, right? It was always selfishly driven. It was, I want to be the best at this thing that I'm doing right now. So either catch up or fall behind. Um, but at the same time, because I was coming from where I was coming from, I wasn't hard-nosed. I was so, so soft, man. I was a marshmallow when it came to the way I treated people. But I was just very quiet on the other side of it. I was super, super shy. So I had this like very hard exterior, and I probably still have this persona to a very large degree, where it's like I don't speak much unless prompted, which makes me come off as like very hard, rigid, and cold. But then on the other side of it, it's like, if you get to know me, I'm just a complete and utter marshmallow. And, you know, that's the way that I was with my my friend group growing up. Um, and it took a lot to get over. Like, I was bullied a lot. I was fat whenever I was, like, a lot younger, prior to me getting into sports, basically. Which was when? Uh, probably, like, first grade to third grade, fourth okay. grade, something like that. Um, so it was always this uphill battle of, like... You know, it's typical child stuff. Like, you're not comfortable with your home life. You're not comfortable with the way you look. You're not comfortable with, like, you know, the way you talk. Whatever. Like, just stupid shit. Um, but whenever I was, I, I was able to find a competitive platform that I felt like I excelled at, it was nice because I wasn't able to lead with what my strongest suit probably was, which was my intellect. Because that wasn't revered, right? Especially at that age. Nobody wants to... Nobody wants to know it all. Nobody wants the smartest kid in the world. That's why I say I think like Dan brought some of the worst qualities out of me because prior to moving out here, I never really competed with uh, other highly intellectual people. So I just let that like sit in the back burner. I never led with it. It was always something that I kind of buried. I was more of a bro than I was a nerd. Uh, but like living with Dan for five or six years, it was just a battle of wits day in and day out. And it turned into this competition where it's just like, okay, like this is what I do now. I have to think about problems differently because this guy is a worthy opponent. Like he's, he's he, I, I say this all the time, but he's probably the most intelligent person that I know in a straight linear fashion. Like I would entrust with him uh, almost any single problem that had an A to Z resolution. Um, and I, I think that that goes a long way, but it was also like fucking obnoxious. You know, it's just like to never be able to take a break whenever you have a conversation like, he he's the type that like corrects your grammar or or it's too much brutally pedantic so pedantic and it, it rubbed off on me to the point where like i would catch myself being like that where i was instead previously the more empathetic one the the one who yeah. offered a lot of leniency and it was just like you know what he means like you know let it go to me there's a single sentence that encapsulates um how dan should proceed forward which is did you really want win an argument if they didn't hear your argument? Yeah. Um, the way that he, again, brutally smart, 
very quick as well yeah. with how he formulates his arguments. But I think his delivery is just, it makes it so that everybody just turns off. Or yeah. a lot of people do. Yeah. They either turn off or they fight back real hard. And I think um, Dan is smart enough to know that too. Oh, for sure. So, I think I think he, I, <laughs> I think he enjoys it. Yes. I think he enjoys the battle. Uh, I also think that it largely applies to me, which is not shocking, but a little bit strange because our deliveries are very, very different. Um, or at least I think they are. Maybe they resemble each other a little bit more than I realize. But uh, I'm way more of the sparring type where it's like, let's go down a bunch of rabbit holes and see where this whole thing ends up. Dan is just finite, man. It's just like, nope, your point is invalid. Here's the counter. Let's move on. And like doesn't even want to offer up a rebuttal. It's just like, that's it. I'm definitely the smartest guy in the room. And largely he's right. Uh, And it's frustrating because like, I think that's why it's so hateable because it's just like, if you're always going to be right, you kind of have to serve it on a plate of humble pie. Yeah. Where it's like, hey, big guy. Also, I said this last week. You, To me, I don't want to live in that world where every single word that, like, you can't think out loud. That's Twitter, man. It's brutal. And I, think- I, I stopped apologizing for it. Like, you know who inspires me is Perkins. Okay. I fucking love Perkins, man. This guy has more grammatical errors in a single tweet <laughs> Than most people will have in a year, but like no one is going to question his intelligence, and that is the platform from which I want to operate. Right? It's just like nitpick all day long. I don't care. I'm not deleting it. Yeah, I misused the word. Don't give a shit. Like when you have a lot of words to choose from, sometimes you're gonna pick the wrong one. Yeah. And it's 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 one of those things where it's like uh, I'm working harder to try to. Uh, I guess, like, normalize my vocabulary. But it's also, like, when you're only dealing with 280 characters, you're more likely to use verbose words there totally than you will in real life. Yeah. When you start to, when you're at minus 32, yeah, you're like, oh, well, I can say this word it's like, instead say, of this yeah, sentence. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I can replace an entire sentence with a big word. Yeah. You figure it out. Like, <laughs> the burden's not on me. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. I, I can see the other side, too, where it's like, hey, we should elevate our language mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. It is the sign of um, just higher thinking, right? Like yeah. it's more efficient in yeah. general. But at the same time, I miss the times where I can just be like, hmm, I wonder if this is good. Right. And not get shit on like, you're a fucking idiot. Of course it's good, you know? Just do it in real life instead of in Twitter. Honestly, yeah. like that, that's more and more, that's what I'm learning like day in and day out. Uh, and it sucks because as I've gotten older and as I've, become everything I didn't want to be, which is a full-fledged business person who spends the majority of his days and nights worrying about uh, where this trajectory is headed. Uh, It's the more that I recognize what I did very well as a child and what I grew into as a young adult and what I've lost now on the backside of actually, you know, kind of becoming efficient at all that. Like becoming efficient at the social cues and uh, the, the the empathy and surrounding yourself with people that you really truly care about, it, it has a lot of downside because when you become efficient, you try to scale. And suddenly like, you know, you expand your circle and you're treating your outer circle the same as the inner circle and that exhausts a lot of energy. And it also dilutes how you feel about your inner circle uh, to, to a large degree. So yeah, I mean, I, I think like getting to a point where especially in your 30s, man, where security is so critical, 
like your 20s you can just fuck up every single day yeah and you'll bounce but like whenever you get into your late 30s it's like okay well what am i trying to accomplish in life because you know i'm on a ticking clock at this point totally yeah. and relationships start to take a little bit of a back burner and it sucks like i i think i i'm putting in more effort to try to come full circle I really, for my 20s, I, I really tried to focus on what I want to do with my life. I was all over the place. Yeah. You know, I just, first off, I graduated 2009, which was not a great year to be in right. New York City finance, actuary, yeah. anything, right? Yeah. The the crash just happened. So it's just twiddling my thumbs, working, you know, a pretty fun job. It was, um, I was doing like financial analysis and um, overall processes for some facility maintenance company. It's like, okay. I just had no passion for it. Didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I just took a leap of faith and went to esports. Did esports. I succeeded in some places, but I think overall I just was not equipped to be a public figure. Yeah. It's just too much in that. And also it's hard. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a grind. I wasn't equipped to be able to put out a tweet every single day to make sure that I'm generating movement around my my community. So um, it was a lot of exploring. And, you know, I've been with my fiance now for 10 years. Wow. Good for you. I've I've really pushed off the whole marriage thing for quite a long time. (laughs) You know, because... Did you ever see the movie Five Year Engagement? I haven't. Oh, man, it's one of my favorites. It's great. Uh, we're going on three years right now. Okay. Three years. Of Good for you, man. She, we always knew, yeah. you know, um, but I think without her, I wouldn't have been able to traverse my journey um, nearly as efficiently. Yeah. Uh, That's the dream, man. Get a power couple, you know? Yeah. You just find somebody who's moving parallel to you and doesn't necessarily need uh, a, a lot of pulling along or, or pushing from behind. Well, she took a lot of leaps of faith. We were in LA. She's a video editor. And I told her we should go move to Vegas. Oh, that wow. does not feel like a step in the right direction right. Yeah, for yeah. a video editor. Yeah, it's tough. Luckily, she found a great job and she's doing okay. Um, but, you know, there, there are definitely a lot of sacrifices. And now my 30s, I'm trying to just stabilize everything that I learned from my 20s. Mm-hmm. I kind of know what I want to do, yeah. which I do. Like, I like what I'm doing right now. But if you told me to quantify what I'm doing right now, I have no fucking clue. Same. Right? It's like, well, I'm doing a little production. Apparently, I'm starting a podcast. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of disagree. <laughs> that w- what I've learned in my 30s is that I'll never know. And I've just uh, kind of come to grips with that. I accept more so the reality that I think I'll always figure something out. Uh, it adds a little bit of fear to old age. But that's why you hustle now. Is And honestly, like that's part of the reason why I think we yearn to accrue wealth. Um, for me also just like pretty much all of my desire to accrue wealth is formulated around wanting to care, like wanting to care for myself, wanting to care for others, wanting to ensure that anybody that I surround myself with, uh, doesn't have a hard life. Mm -hmm. I want to wrap it back to, um, the hierarchy, the, the base level hierarchy. I can't even say it. Hierarchy needs, um, and it's just my pushback of, I don't know where I would be if I didn't invest. I can argue myself right now, but I'll, I'll say my statement. I don't know where I would be if I didn't invest maximum amount of time in Johanna 
mm-hmm. and making sure that our uh, our relationship was um, kind of like the focal point of my life. No, that's good though. The, I, I think that means you graduated the hierarchy. Yes, but right? because like we had know, financial struggles all throughout that time. But yeah. maybe I'm thinking. Uh, but but you were never homeless. You no. were never on the brink of death. No, you were never unhealthy, right? And that that's kind of like the whole point. If we if we distill this down to to uh, archaic terms of like cavemen, right? And you compare like your most struggled point to literally a guy living in a cave who has to go hunt for food. Mm-hmm. You're probably still doing pretty good. So like those bottom needs are are largely just fulfilled, and it is great. You should be putting a big emphasis on, you know, yourself internally and your relationships and all of the social elements of life so that your next step isn't a step backwards where it's like, okay, now what 60 hour a week job can I find so I can ignore this element because it's on cruise control. And instead, like, if I'm going to pursue something in a career path, can I affect greater change? Yeah. I think the one thing I want to target is that is not brought up is just being able to make that money, the pathways in which we get there. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, really interests me in poker because, or I think it's interesting because a lot of people invest all their time. I know a friend that he was a barista and in his spare time, he would take everything that he made from being a barista and go play poker. Yeah. And he invested all of his time into poker. Yeah, He went through a brutal downswing. And I think he was in a, a place where his major pathway to financial success has just been flipped upside down. Sure. He doesn't have a pathway anymore and he went into severe depression. Yeah. And I think that is unique to poker. Um, yeah, probably. In a lot of, I mean, truck drivers might have that problem in like the next 10 years Yeah. where an entire industry gets flipped upside down. But um, the fundamental premise of all of this is that that pathway is so important to have I think you could you could be homeless and all that stuff, but if you have that pathway, I think that's all you need to then traverse up that. Yeah, but I think that's coming from point of privilege a little bit because you would never take a pathway that had no growth. Whereas I think the vast majority of people who are stuck in that trap are literally filling the void with another nine to five that's paying minimum wage or, or double minimum wage, whatever. So like, uh, in most situations where people have the rug pulled out and they lose their job, they're just trying to fill that void then with another hourly job. And they're just hopping one to the next. Mm. It's rare that people can just like sit down and say like, this is my career path. Yeah. If, if somewhere along the way I run into a hurdle and I lose the current job that I'm in, I'll move laterally and stay stay the course. That's that's not common outside of like doctors and lawyers and like highly qualified professions. Yeah, maybe the well for sure I think the age of 40-year-old professions are mostly dead. Yeah, agreed. Even we're finding people like like Kerstetter, mm-hmm. trained lawyer. Yeah. She can go and crush anywhere she wants to and she's decided that it's just not for her and switched over. I can't blame her, man. You understand my mom was basically in tears when I told her I was going to go play video games. No, I get it. Like, that is so difficult to actually switch career paths in general. Yeah. And especially someone like Kerstetter where she could she could be financially set for life. She has the path already. Yeah, but at what cost? At what cost, for right? sure. Right, because the time exchange is so fucking great and you just can't have that back. 
So it's just like, how important is it to live a slightly more financially comfortable life as opposed to actually living a life? And I know that sounds like very foo-foo yeah. and new age, but... A lot of people will read that as, I can struggle one way or can struggle the other way. Right. And for some reason, people are saying, oh, let's struggle... Emotionally. Emotionally. Yeah. I would infinitely rather struggle financially. And I know that's coming from a, a spot of privilege too, because I'm not currently struggling financially, uh-huh. but... But you've been there. I've been through both. <laughs> you've I've been, been there. through both. And the financial struggles, as deep of a despair as it may feel, because it it does feel like a weight on your chest that's never going to get alleviated, it's nothing, nothing compared to being a hollow, shelled out version of yourself. And that I can speak to because that's not that far removed, right? Like I go through these ebbs and flows and these waves where it's like I put the too much in one basket and too much focus on things that aren't necessarily important. And suddenly uh, my social circle starts crumbling outside from me. That is an, a miserable feeling that lasts long, long beyond the relief. You know, it's like once you start taking corrective action, you're still dealing with months and months and months of fallout where it's like I've just been empty for so long because all I've cared about is pursuing this one stringent path. Mm-hmm. And like, what's the means to the end the other way? You know, I've conditioned my circle to just expect that. Like, I'll go radio silent with my parents for yeah. a year. Yeah. And they're just like, he's working. Yeah, no, same. But I think it's unfair. It is. I think it's very unfair. Because, <laughs> like, imagine if you did that with Johanna. Yeah. Right? So it's it, now we're just talking about, like, how close they are to you in the circle. Of course. And I guess, like, that's something that uh, you have mitigated a little bit better than me but you've also been with her for a decade so like for me it's kind of a one-size-fits-all type thing where um you know even my closest friends will get the radio silence for days on end and it's hard man it's it's hard to figure out how you're going to traverse adult friendships that you've had since kindergarten whenever they have a family that they're allocating a lot of time to and when they make time for you you just can't seem to make time for them and it's difficult to figure out like how you're going to traverse having an adult relationship when uh, you know you you prioritize moving these big pieces in your life and uh, you know you you kind of like put the idea of a partner on a pedestal where it's like well I want to move unilaterally together mm-hmm. and it's that's a huge ask it is. who's signing up for that yeah. <laughs> She had no clue what she was getting into. Yeah. She was dating an esports commentator when we first met. Like, <laughs> how many esports commentators have people dated in the right. history of the world? Yeah. There's not many. Right. Um, let me ask you one thing. We're talking, I'm talking about these path stuff. Do you think it is responsible now for a barista or a an Uber driver to go and play poker? For sure. You think it is? Yeah. Even though that their pathway, like now you're basically playing, if I'm an Uber driver, you're, you're kind of playing with um, that bottom threshold. For of sure. Hierarchy. For sure. But those are dead end jobs. 100%. Mm. Um, this was the argument that Nick made. And my counter to him was, yes, on the surface, Uber pays $19 an hour. But when you consider the fact of maintenance, gas, uh, you know, the, the wait times, all this other stuff, it actually breaks down to somewhere between minimum wage and 12 bucks an hour. Uh, and you also have to consider the overhead that most who get into Ubering don't. If you were to buy a new car and Uber for five years, 
you need to be driving 30 to 40,000 miles a year just to make like a livable wage, like 40K a year. So uh, if that's the case, then every three to five years, you're going to need a new car where your trade-in value is zero. And that's hard, right? So that means that you also have a payment every month. And uh, most people driving Uber probably don't have the greatest credit. So like that payment's going to come with interest mm-hmm. and it's going to be expensive. Uh, so you see poker as not a dead-end job for the majority of human beings. Well, I don't see it as a job. So I guess here's the here's the differentiator. Okay, Uber is cannibalistic on its workers. It doesn't intend to be, but that's just what the model is, right? And the reason is because they're striving towards autonomy. They don't care about the driver long run. Mm-hmm. This is a loss leader to get them to automated mm-hmm. vehicles, right? So there is no means to an end there. There's no scale. There's no ability to actually make a, a reasonable living. Poker is a high failure rate, just like any startup. So the counter I would have is, do you think it's irresponsible for a barista or an Uber driver to start a small business? Yes. You do? I do. Okay. Only reason why I say that is because if you are an Uber driver or a barista, um, you're in a situation where I don't think you have the capacity to make financial or, yeah, you don't have the capacity to make financial um, aggressive moves. I think that generally if you are a barista i mean again if you have a 10k bankroll yeah yeah sure go for it start your own business okay so we're on the same page um but generally those people are not in those positions right uh we're we're effectively on the same page but i would just allow it to go to the other side of zero i I would say like if you want to borrow 10k Mm. uh, and put yourself in that sort of debt go ahead and do it wow Um, and a lot of this is formulated off of People are surviving with six figures in college debt. So the idea that investing 10% of that in yourself in a long shot, uh, to me, doesn't seem that fundamentally crazy. Um, With that said, I understand what you're saying. Like the risk feels tremendous because if you fail, you're still at an entry level position anywhere you go. And that's going to take a long time to get back. But we just also attach a lot of pride to nonsense. Go bankrupt. It doesn't fucking matter. Right. It's not going to ruin you forever. Yeah. It's going to be a tough seven years, but you're an entry-level worker. Who gives a shit? It's a problem when you take on aggressive financial risk worth six figures, right? It's a problem whenever you go bankrupt off of being a multimillionaire, right? Now, that seven-year uh, purgatory that you're in becomes very detrimental to you. But when you're at an entry-level position anyway, yeah, it's going to be difficult to get a car loan. Yeah, it's going to be difficult to do all these things, but figure out how to navigate the system. I think one thing that I'll, I'll push on is I don't think the population is capable of starting their own business. That I agree with. And I think that there are better steps to take. Poker is incredibly difficult to learn. I think the failure rate of poker is comparable to a small business. Tremendous. Um, mainly because I think most people's ideas for business are very, very bad. Mm-hmm. And they're also poorly constructed and then poorly executed. I would say the exact same thing goes for poker. I would say it's tough. Because I also think that we're adults and we should be able to do whatever. I mean, I guess that's a separate conversation. I'm saying more, should they do it as a financial um, dependent? Right. I I guess the thing that I'm unsure of is uh, what the other alternative is. Like if they have a vocational skill set that they could otherwise be monetizing, then no. It would be very irresponsible to just chase poker. Sure. But I assume that if they're a barista or driving Uber, 
it's because they don't think they have any employable skills. Yeah. And at that point, it's just like, okay, well, what's the risk versus reward? Again, it goes back to pathways. Yeah. You know, being able to to know that you can fish. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what we do a very poor job of if we want to go on a whole other tangent. Like the educational system is so fucking broken that, you know, you do have a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings who are just lost on an island and do feel trapped in this lower hierarchy because they don't feel employable. They don't feel like they have any particular unique skill sets and they don't recognize the value that they can actually offer as a worker bee. Yeah. Well, that's why I always say that esports saved my life because I was in, I was in, I wouldn't say depression, but I was in a, a state where I just, I didn't care whether or not I got hit by a car or not. Mm. I would go onto an airplane and literally tell myself, if it ends here, it's fine. Yeah. You know? That's wild. Um, that's because dark, man. I, I mean, it's the brutal truth because yeah. I was just doing this job that I didn't really care about and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And thankfully, esports kind of like yeah. gave me another path that I've enjoyed and was kind of, I mean, I started with 20K when I moved out to California mm-hmm. and went to like negative five by the time I was done with esports. It does not pay that well. Being in California, that's not that bad. No, it's not. <laughs> it was over three years. So oh my God. You, I crushed you it. You lived a good life for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was it was a very weird experience uh, doing all esports. I remember when I first started, I was being paid $500 a month for wow. doing the whole gig. That's awful. That obviously In LA? Awful. In LA. So you get $500 a day if you want to live. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Life was very difficult. Life was very difficult back then. That's that's crazy, man. Okay, so tying it all back um, to Galfond. Um, he's out of state. Just to refresh you guys, minus 100K, uh, minus 1 million uh, USD, minus like 900K. Um, you said, we, we talked about if he would continue. Mm-hmm. Should he continue? I think so. I, I think there's a lot of bright side. Uh, through him finishing this challenge. I think, number one, it further prepares him for uh, all the competition that he has left to face. Number two, I don't think he can perform this below EV for the entirety of it. So uh, I don't think he's that far away from what his max stop or from what his max loss is going to be. Like, if he's losing as badly as the numbers suggest right now, I think that his ex- expectation is probably like minus 1.5 million. Does he have all of himself, do you think, of this? I don't know, man. I, I honestly don't know. I imagine not just because there's a lot of faith in him in the community. And yeah. uh, his, you know, his crew is very, very, very successful. So I imagine they want to support him and have some peace. So maybe they'll have some say in whether he continues or not. But the upside for his brand, the upside for... Um, run at once poker for even his mental state and study moving forward. Like, remember he's gonna have 25,000 hands to comb through yeah. against obviously like one of the better heads up PLO players. So I think that the return on him finishing out the last two thirds of this challenge uh, are probably greater than him sparing himself the extra 500 K that he potentially has up risk. And he, and the other thing is that like, it's not unheard of that he can win the backside of this challenge and, you know, reduce it to a small loss. I recognize that. Okay. Um, how about his mental state going into this? Like clearly he needed to take all of March off. If he goes into, let's say another, 
two session downswing. Yeah. How how do you think he should proceed there? Um. You know, well, I guess it depends what he does between now and then. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I imagine he's proactively trying to reset and. Do you feel refocus. there's ever like a stop loss is necessary? If you know you have infinite money, do you think there's a stop? I mean. I kind of yeah. mean like it doesn't affect right, you nearly right, as much. Right, yeah. Do you think a stop loss should be in, in play for him? Um, I would say maybe, but it probably would have been like 400K ago. Uh-huh. Um, Because it seems like if you're going to try to mitigate your risk, you would do so at a point where it seems insurmountable, even if it's not. And I think that that threshold is probably somewhere around uh yeah i I don't know maybe like 30 40 buy-ins now that we're breaching 50 plus yeah remember these guys are playing for those at home they're playing 100 200 euros Mm -hmm. that's the blind structure so they're sitting down with 20k euros which is all obviously a ton of money but with you and matt let's say you guys were sitting down with 100k stacks yeah which is a lot different so those swings feel a lot more natural Right. Man, going 50 buy-ins deep and expecting to, you know. A, it's hard. A good, session would, a good challenge now would be getting to minus 25 buy-ins. Yeah, and the thing is, is like a 50, a 50 buy-in downswing is not by any stretch of the imagination unheard of. Mm-hmm. But you have to recognize that like if you're a heads-up PLO player who's just playing and grinding, what's going to happen through the course of coming out of that downswing is you're going to play multiple opponents some of which you have greater edge against than others. You're going to be able to take time off. You're going to be able to pace the matches as you see fit. There aren't going to be all these rigid parameters that you have to abide by. Uh, In in Phil's situation, he really does have his back up against it, right? He has to play X amount of hours over Y amount of days, and he has to do all this publicity and be transparent about the challenge. But I think as far as, you know, I don't know what his net worth is, but I assume that he can afford it. And assuming that this is like 1%, of uh his his life's worth or whatever the case may be Mm -hmm. i think it's a it's a worthwhile cost for the growth that he'll achieve out of it uh and i again i know that that sounds like new agey and and kind of bullshitty but i think that like these dark difficult moments are really what help define a person and phil's done and said everything correct so it's not like as if he needs uh kind of put on that pedestal already yeah but i think like you know he hasn't played poker in a really long time consistently and uh i think that like he's battled through some challenges in business and this may be kind of a chin check where it's like hey you're still human uh you're you're not out of the backside of this yet and it, it can refocus him in a million different ways. Maybe this is like what ultimately allows him to arrive at a massive correction in his business model for run at once poker. Who knows? Right. But like he could write a book about this if he really wants. Yeah. There, there are so many avenues where like this shakes out positively uh, if he endures the challenge. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes I think about like um, whether retreating is the right option. Um, I, I've kind of you know, thought out loud about what is he trying to prove if he continues this? Sometimes my mental state, especially with like particular human beings, that there's there's one guy in our company that he's just way better than me in poker. Mm-hmm. I know this, and but I have such a competitive nature that I just want to battle him every single time. Sure. Um, and it wasn't until recently where I was like, hey, can I borrow money from you? Because you've stacked me. And then he stacked me again. It's like, <laughs> all right. 
now I'm just a battered woman at this point. Right? <laughs> like I, I need to, I need to know that just against him, like unless I take drastic actions mm. to be better and think better and understand the game. And we were playing heads up PLO as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just shouldn't play him. Yeah. And I just cut my, I said to, to him, I, I'm never, I'm banning myself against ever playing you heads up. Sure. We could play six handed, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it's heads up, I'm just, I'm going to say no every single time. Yeah. You're in the cage. Yeah. There's no escape. And to me, it's just certain people where you have to do that. And I don't know if Phil, uh, it gives me a lot of emotional um, solace to know that I don't have to deal with that situation anymore mm-hmm. because I've set up a structure where if I want to play him, I got to do work to yeah. get there. Yeah, yeah, And I'm not going to go into this meat grinder and I'm not necessarily saying Phil is a loser against right, Vinny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're at a state where it feels that way. Mathematically, it's very hard to disprove that. Mm. And me continuing play, the best case scenario is I get even. And the worst case scenario is I'm in v- much deeper financial ruin. Yeah. What am I trying to prove at this point? Yeah. yeah. So that's, I, I think that's a more natural human, like you've played at that those high stakes. You're a super competitive human being. I understand where you're coming from. But I think that's what like the majority of I just people think might we're, do. I just don't think you achieve the impossible without the, the attempt. Okay. And in my mind, like this is set up for a real hero's journey. But why don't you just say, okay, I'll meet you up in six months. Let's go again. Why is that not that? Because who cares at that point? Who, who are you proving something to other than yourself that you could put in six months of work? Phil's time is better served, right? He still has two businesses to operate under. Like he started this challenge. He put his money up. Uh, I, I wouldn't think any less of him if he did decide like this is a losing endeavor and walking away. Mm-hmm. But at some point, uh, I, I feel like the line between sheer and utter EV and uh, business tactics and uh, bottom line and all this other stuff that we try to accurately measure as poker players gets blurred and it just distills down to the competition like we i think our desire for black and white answers often clouds our ability for hero moments and we don't know what the ev of these two playing heads up are we don't know who has edge we can estimate and it's a fair guess that it's veniviti but who cares right like people come from behind all the time. Adjustments can be made. I just think that way more is gained by Phil just saying like, look, this isn't a money thing. If it's a money thing, way different. Walk away, right? But I know he wouldn't make this challenge if it were a money thing. So assuming it's not a money thing, and I'm not even trying to make it about a pride and ego thing. I'm trying to make it about a Goggins thing. Whereas, What's that? Uh, so Goggins is, uh, he wrote, can't hurt me. Um, and he's he's a former Marine who was like 300 and some pounds, uh, you know, trained himself to get into the Marines. He went through buds three times, which is like their basic training. And it's like unheard of. It's just sheer and utter torture. Uh, and he's just this guy who's known to go to the extremes. Like he ran a hundred mile uh, ultra having never completed a marathon before and like ran on broken feet and like all this stuff. He's just so fucking extreme, right? Like he literally takes the whole getting to 100% of your capacity to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. He was like shitting himself and pissing down his leg during the whatever, right? So I'm here minding my fucking business, trying to relax. 
the driver has the fucking his playlist on mute, so he can't hear any music. Me and my girl are here talking. She glances over at the fucking playlist. What pops up? Fucking going the distance. It brings me back when I was 300 pounds trying to lose fucking weight to get the Navy SEALs. My goal was to go out, I had a plan. My plan is to go out there and run four fucking miles. But guess what? Everybody's got a fucking plan so they can hit in the fucking mouth. That's for Mike Tyson. So when your plan fails, when those boasting fucking laws get too heavy, when you get knocked the fuck down in the fucking canvas, when everything falls apart in your life and your plan is fucked up, what the fuck are you gonna do? There's only one motherfucking option. Stay fucking hard. I'm just basically saying like, this is this is uh, a defining moment or can be a defining moment for Phil where it's like really throwing down the gauntlet to yourself, not even to Venny Vitti or to the collective community or whatever because he can do anything here and he's still Phil Galfon and we still respect him and nothing is going to fall out from it. But if he steps up and says like, okay, this is my time to shine and I don't give a fuck if I flounder in the process, I think that there's the opportunity for like a really poetic story or at least a poetic ending. So you think he's going for glory? I think he should, but okay. not in order to receive the glory. I think there's just as much glory in failing as there is in succeeding in this instance. Be, it's more so just to see like what he's made of. I'm very hypocritical in saying this, but is this good for the community to see? I th my 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 gut instinct is yes. Yeah, for sure. But then I start thinking back to how quick we are to slay our heroes and how fast uh, people may start to say like, oh, well, he's not that good or, or whatever. I mean, whatever. Yes, I'm going to stick with yes because in my mind, Phil Gelfond's bulletproof and if people want to start attacking him as a professional, as a businessman, his character, anything along that, that gamut, I trust that the community will protect him you know, fully fully armed totally i want to be clear too i have the utmost respect for phil galfon he's one of the first pros that i actually like ever um well besides like the major pros i think like the new age pros yeah, yeah. that i ever uh, really encountered and uh I'm, I'm not trying to like shit on him or anything like that i'm just i'm genuinely curious right about all these things well i think your questions are poignant uh, and i think they're valid because you know money's a factor whether yeah. whether we want to acknowledge that or not uh, image is a factor, right? It's like he could have just rode off into the sunset. Yeah. Um, and I think know, these are all the reasons why I'm saying like, I, I, I think it's great for him to not do that, not to just step away and say like, eh, I failed. Like, let's move on to the next challenge and see if we can do better. Because I always hear stories like poker players are notorious to, they'll win $1.7 million or whatever. They never have more than a million dollars on them. Right. Like never, ever, ever. Yeah, yeah. You know? So when I hear he's down a million, to me, I just think like, to, does he actually have that much? Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he does. Was he expecting to actually lose? 50 binds is a ton. Sure. Right? He's He still has 15,000 hands left. Yeah. He's 40% complete, not even 40% completed in this challenge. Right. A lot of that's scary to me. I'm scared for him. Good. But it's because these numbers are, are funny money numbers. But good. That's good. That, that strengthens the narrative. As long as Phil's not scared, or at least not scared to the point of... Uh, being inca incapacitated, then all that does is is strengthen the story when it's all said and done. 
The only awful outcome here is if it's just a bloodbath. If yeah. he just plays 25,000 hands and loses 2.5 million. Yeah. yeah. That's terrifying to me. Yeah. And it's, I think that situation is more likely to happen than the, the better. I don't. Why do you not? Cause I just can't fathom a world where somebody has that large of an edge over somebody as good as Phil. And maybe I'm overqualifying Phil. Yeah. I don't know his game in and out, but I trust that between himself and the people he surrounds himself with, he can't be that big of a dog against anybody. Yeah, you're right. But that's the beauty and the punishment of poker. You're like you're just not entitled to your upswing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah for sure. You're not entitled. You could you could be on a twenty five thousand. You know, twenty five thousand hands isn't a ton of hands. It is. They always look it's at a 10, year 000. for me, man. <laughs> yeah that's true but online that goes quick you know yeah, yeah, yeah a lot can sure. happen and if you look and distill all the big hands you're only talking about like 50 hands where right. all the money is exchanging yeah, yeah that's crazy no it's insane that's weird that's really insane that's so, live poker in a nutshell <laughs> yeah 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 you, know, you can remember your big ups and downs and well you've told me hands from 2013 2012 yeah yeah they stick with you will you ever forget them yeah yeah probably I've I've already forgotten a bunch. Okay. There's a lot I, I couldn't recall. Well, I wish Phil a ton of luck. Um, I'm really rooting for the guy. I'm scared. Like, genuinely just scared. Sure. I, I don't know what's going to happen. He has great streams um, where every single hand I know is going to be broadcast and uh, it's going to be on the Run It Once channel. Hey, I saw on some forums that Run It Once is uh, RNG is rigged that's the case right now yeah obviously <laughs> <laughs> who makes these posts it's so crazy uh you know if this is a, a ploy to prove that the rng at runner once is not rigged you don't there are easier ways than to to not losing a million dollars yeah right um speaking of this is a a rough transition but speaking of upcoming things should we should we talk about this uh, Poker Out Loud live thing again. Is it happening? Is it happening? I hope so. Okay. <laughs> it's, ha- it's happening this Thursday now. So uh, we want to do some high stakes shenanigans. Yeah. Uh, we're doing the partnership again. We're doing a, a Poker Out Loud, which for those of you at home that do know what it is, it's very similar to what you guys see here, but we're doing it live with some very interesting, well-known players. I want to throw in a caveat here. Okay. In case that doesn't happen. Okay. We will be doing a small stake stream <laughs> with some lesser known players. Extreme ownership. It's happening on Thursday. <laughs> okay. Whether I'll be in the mix for sure. Matt Berkey is going to shit his pants or pee right. down his leg. I don't care. <laughs> it's going to happen. Okay. We don't we we don't give ourselves those outs, Ben Berg. All right, hey, that's fine. I just want them to know one way or another. Poker Out Loud Live Poker will be streaming on Thursday. Yes, this Thursday, February something. Yeah, February twentieth. Twentieth. Yeah. Yes, and then February twenty first, we're doing a comedy night, where we have comedians coming for Joe Stapes is putting together a lineup. Yeah. On on Run It Up TV. Yeah, Run It Up TV. Where are they doing it? We're doing it at our place. For real? Yeah, he's bringing people over. He's flying out here. Is there an audience? Bling, bring, no, 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 no. Oh. It's just a group of comedy people playing, and we're gonna live stream. Oh, they're playing. Yeah, yeah. I playing, thought they were doing stand up. No, 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 no. Well, I'm sure they'll do some of their stuff. In the- they better have bits. Yeah, they better have bits. 
Else, why did we even bother? Right, it's not like they're good at poker. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to see them play. I, I want to hear their jokes. We're going to do like 50 cent a dollar in those too. Okay, cool. Mm, I like that. It'll be interesting. Yeah. I like it. You know, a lot of, there's some YouTube stuff of comedians playing and they're God awful. Sure. God, God awful. No RFID table. Right. It gets like 600,000 views. Really? Yeah. I should just get Bobby Lee. Fascinating. To do it. The internet is a He's strange, friends with them. strange just, dark place. All right, Matt Berkey. Um, well, first, good luck, Phil Galfond. We're all rooting for you. I think everybody here is rooting yeah, for you. for sure. You are definitely the hero in this story. Um, April 3rd to the 13th, we're doing Run It Up Reno. Matt Berkey's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Jason Somerville will be there. It is a poker festival for the ages. It is Run It Up Reno number 10. Please come hang out with us. Uh, yeah, we have poker in there, but we also have you know group slot polls. We have uh, karaoke night. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Can't wait. Cannot wait. I'm pumped. Um, we also got March. I, I tried to remember this. I, I think 6th to the 8th. Yes. We got uh, Solve for Why meetup game. That's right. In Austin. Yeah. We also have a meetup game. Uh, oh, right there. Sorry. This Wednesday mm-hmm. at MGM. Whoa. For anybody. When who, did that happen? Uh, so we have the Academy on Monday through Wednesday. Okay. And we've just started to make it a habit to create a meetup game uh, after the last day. That's awesome. So we're all going to MGM, 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead and head on down there. Don't know what the stakes are going to be. I hope it's as small as the lowest play. Yeah. Now, Berkey, I want to remind you yeah. that this is a meetup game that you're hosting. the premise. Okay. Listen, I want to cap the game at like 40 big blinds uh-huh. and just like keep it nice and friendly. Okay. Last time we played 1-3 uncapped. You won $3,000. I understand what happened, Andre. Yeah. I don't want that to be the case. I'm there to donate. Let's play small. Let's have a good time. Yeah. I'm going to say the same joke again. Yeah. Last time, someone fucked over the friends that hard. Yeah. They got caught and he got reamed out by Doug Polk and Joey Ingram. Yeah. Well, that guy. And is, there was a ton of investigation. That about guy's him. friends were probably also in on it <laughs> for what it's worth. Um, yeah. But we should have like four or five tables reserved there. Uh-huh. So uh, anybody listening who's in the Vegas area, please head on down to MGM. Right on. It's one more thing. Oh, the Academy. Uh, yeah, we have Academy April 1st to the 3rd. So right before running up Reno. How many so, more slots left? Four. Four. Yeah. So it gets lesser every It's going single. fast, man. Well, the thing is we opened it up to previous attendees. So uh, they get to come back nice. for $1,000 instead of the full price. Nice. And they eat that shit up. That's good. <laughs> it's good for them. Not great for us. Yeah. Uh, I think you can find out more information about that at tv.selfforwide.io. Yeah. That's going to do it for this edition, number 37 vlogcast uh, for Software in the books. I'm Andre Hanksha, Matt Berkey. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you guys next week. Yeah.